We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through chapter 53, verse 13, or verse 12. So if you would open there, and then if you would stand for the reading of God's word. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has, been, that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be counted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, 
and makes intercession for the transgressors. You can be seated as we pray. Father, it's a glorious thing today to gather and remember the empty tomb, to remember that Jesus is conquered. And yet, as even, even as we gather on this high, high day, we need the help of your Spirit. As we gather to, to just dwell on your word and really let you speak to us, we are together asking for the help of your Spirit to hear and to be changed by what you've said. Encourage us. Fix our eyes on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Children have I reared and brought up, but they've rebelled against me. So begins God's message to his people through the prophet Isaiah. And then for five unrelenting chapters, God lays into the complacency of Israel in their sins. So in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, How the faithful city has become a whore. Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers. And this theme isn't quickly deserted. Though it's consecrated in those, concentrated in those first five chapters, it carries throughout the book. A holy God designed a holy people to reflect His goodness. This God wants a whole and just world and He's called His people to shine that light but they have not done so. And it is no small matter. Israel, God says, must be carried away into exile. Destruction will come. Those who once knew the smile of God will instead feel His frown. But in the second half of the book of Isaiah, though those themes are not entirely abandoned, there's an entirely different feel. Listen how the second half begins in chapter 40. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. By chapter 60, God says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but Yahweh will arise upon you. And his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light. And kings to the brightness of your rising. What's changed? Why is God able to take a sinful people, pull them out of the exile they deserve, and restore them to his favor, restore them to his original purposes for them. 
is an important question. Immensely important. Because we have much in common with Israel under judgment. Like them, we've tried to maintain our kind of outer righteousness while in reality yielding to man-made ideals and values. Like them, we've craved to share in the victories of our surrounding culture and so have sold ourselves out to their system. Like them, we have failed to be God's light to the nations around us that so need it. Why is God able to save such a people? How is God able to take people who are here in their sin and restore them to his favor? I remember several years ago, I was driving in Quebec with my family. And when I drive in Quebec, I am completely dependent on the whim of the GPS because I have no idea what any of the signs are saying. And my GPS took me to the banks of the Ottawa River. I knew where I wanted to be, which was on the other side at church with my family. And I knew where I was in a car that doesn't float on the wrong side of a massive river with no bridge in sight. And I had no idea how I was going to get from here to there. That's where we are right now in our discovery of the book of Isaiah. We know where we want to be. We all want to get to this place where we know God's comfort and His tender care. We all want to be a light to the nations. But that's not where we are yet in Isaiah. So how do we get from point A to point B? How do we get from a city of murderers to a city that holds out the light and hope of Christ to the nations? How do sin-sick people begin to hear God speak tenderly to them again? That's a crucial question because all of us like this second half message of Isaiah, the God who comforts and restores. But most of us get there by just erasing the first half of Isaiah. God simply isn't just. He's just not, he's not quite that holy. He doesn't take sin that seriously. He can wink at it. But that's not the God of Isaiah. So for the book of Isaiah, the million dollar question is, how will our sin be dealt with? In many ways, it's the million dollar question of the whole Old Testament. And for all but the most self-righteous today, It is our own million-dollar question.
how will our sin be dealt with by a holy God? And the prophet Isaiah, with specificity that will give you chills, answers that question head on in Isaiah 52:13 to 53:12, which forms one single song, a song about a servant. Now, it's one single song, but not sung by a single voice. Maybe you know that back in 1984, Bono, Duran Duran, Cool and the Gang, and Phil Collins united to form a super band to raise funds for Africa. In their hit, Do They Know It's Christmas?, These various iconic voices basically just take turns singing a line in the song. And while this song in Isaiah is completely different, it does have that similar component. Three different voices appear taking turns singing a unified message. And the very first voice we hear is, a much bigger deal than Bono. It's God himself. And his words run from 52, 13 to verse 15. He begins. Let me turn back to it. He begins. Behold my servant. Take note of him who acts wisely. This servant, he says, is a big deal. He acts wisely. He will be high and lifted up and exalted. Take note. Behold him. As many are just astonished at him, verse 14 begins, are as many as shall be Sprinkled clean by him, verse 15 concludes. Many nations sprinkled, cleansed. But why would so many be astonished at him? There's that little interruption in verse 14, kind of an explanation. Why are they astonished? Because he's so amazing? Because he's so glorious? No. Because of how disfigured he is. How marred our first hint that this is not the typical champion. Verse 15 will go on to tell us that he shuts the mouths of kings. Those who think they are so wise, who have heard everything and seen all, he teaches them something new. You get the sense that this Servant is something the world does not intuitively grasp. This is something or or someone altogether different. He'll shock us. He'll shut our mouths. Behold then, the one whom God exalts. Behold. 
The one who astonishes the nations, shuts the mouths of kings. Behold the one that, though marred and disfigured, sprinkles the nations clean. Do we have your attention? Enter the next set of voices. Chapter 53, verses 1 to 6. A group, an ensemble, we might say, of witnesses. And they begin their song with a question. Who's going to believe us? Who will get to see Yahweh's mighty saving arm? And then they describe the servant in ways that explain why they think their message might be a bit implausible. This little, little plant that just springs out of the dry ground. If you're applying for a position, think about his resume. Not a natural born leader. Neither his form nor majesty demand any sort of attention. No it factor, no chutzpah, no debonair good looks. Also, people despise him. They reject him. But there's one thing he's good at. Suffering. He's a man of sorrows. He knows grief well. I mean, verse 3 tells us he's one of those guys people don't even want to look at. And in that same verse, these witnesses make a crucial confession. They tell us, we esteemed him not. It's not just the world out there that rejects God's chosen servant. We ourselves did. He didn't measure up. He wasn't our cup of tea. We examined him, and we concluded he was not worthy of our esteem. But something happened for these witnesses. Scriptures don't tell us what it is. But somewhere between verse 3 and verse 4, something changes. Look at verses 4 and 5. This low, humble, no majesty servant does something remarkable. He takes upon himself our griefs and our sorrows. He suffers in our stead, bearing our transgressions and our iniquities. Our sin is transposed onto him and as a result, we can again know peace. His wounds are our healing. And with that, these witnesses then go on to talk about the common state we share as humanity. All of us, they say, are sheep that have gone astray. Now, sheep are pretty stubborn animals. You give them a shepherd, 
I wants to lead them to good pasture and good water and place where they can stay warm in the sun or whatever it is they need. They get their little sheep minds locked onto something and they're bent on that unless something comes and pretty much forces them to where they need to go. And we humans are pretty stubborn too. We have a loving creator, calls himself our shepherd, who wants our good, who wants to bless us. But instead, we insist on autonomy. Ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. I'm going to follow my heart. I don't need no ancient set of rules. I am my own king, the captain of my own fate. I don't need a god. And to one extent or another, that is every one of us. Sheep who've gone astray. And verse 5 says, sorry, verse 6 says, Yahweh has taken our sin and laid them on this servant. Maple Avenue, behold your Savior. Behold the servant, low and despised, acquainted with grief, but marvelous and wonderful because he has taken the penalty our sins deserve. So will we believe what the witnesses have sung? Will we allow ourselves to experience the saving arm of Yahweh? Or will we simply despise and reject him? And with that, the witnesses' voices fade and a new voice enters. And it's none other than the prophet Isaiah himself, verses 7 to 10. The prophet of God offers his own account. This servant was oppressed and afflicted, yes, but it's even more than that, he tells us. He opened not his mouth. All the abuse that was heaped upon him, he endured willingly without resistance. Like a sheep that's sitting there having its wool sheared off, he simply stood there and allowed the atrocities to overwhelm him. And well, verse, and, and then verse 8 makes clear that none of what happened to him was just. He didn't deserve any of his suffering. This was a miscarriage of justice, if ever there was one. And then, in verse 8, the awful news is told us. He was cut off from the land of the living. God's exalted servant died. 
Why? For the transgressions of Isaiah's own people. Certainly Isaiah's people would have been the Jews, but we know from 52, 15 that this death was for the sins of all the nations. This innocent servant died for your sins, for my sins. And worse, his contemporaries didn't even give a thought to it. Who considered it? Isaiah laments. And the haunting answer to that rhetorical question is implied. Nobody. So he died. He died for our sins. And we take no notice of him. And so Isaiah buries him in verse 9 in a description that can only make sense when the fulfillment comes. And then verse 9 closes with another reminder that he did nothing wrong. Do our hearts not weep at this? If this was a story of an ordinary man, our hearts would burst. Here he is unjustly condemned, unjustly executed, for our sins, and yet we pay him little mind. Bury him. But then, as if the servant's death didn't already blow us away, things become a little bit more astounding. Isaiah had sung in verse 8 that all this happened because of a miscarriage of justice. But verse 10 smacks us with a new paradigm-shifting reality. Do you see it? Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. The God who said, Behold my servant, he shall be high and lifted up. This God is the one who willed him to suffer so. This God is the one who put him to such grief. And once the servant's soul has fulfilled the necessary offering for her sins, another shock. It says he will see his offspring and prolong his days. In other words, he's going to die, but he will also rise. He who was cut off from the land of the living will prolong his days. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And because of that, Yahweh's will will prosper in his hands. No one wants to catch that. It was Yahweh's will to put him to death. And yet, in his resurrection, Yahweh's will will be accomplished by him. What is this teaching us about the will of God? Friends, what is God's will according to these verses? It's our restoration, it's our healing, it's our forgiveness, it's our peace. God so loved this world that. He gave His only Son 
so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Yahweh's will for sinners like you and me is to be restored to him, forgiven. And he was so committed to that will that his servant gave himself over like a sheep to die for our transgressions. Let us marvel at the heart of God, the love of God for us, and praise the Lord. So we've now heard from all three voices, the three soloists, Although I guess the second one's more of an ensemble. But before the song ends, that voice that's far better than Bono's returns. God himself concludes the song in verses 11 and 12. Now God's voice reiterates what both the witnesses and Isaiah have told us. This servant died for our sins to make us right with God says that this, his agony actually gave him a certain knowledge, a pathway that was opened by his suffering for our sins that enabled him by his knowledge to... Do you see that there in verse 10? Sorry, 11. To account us righteous. Accounted righteous. I think it's important to understand. Let's say there's a big whiteboard. And on the whiteboard is written all of the sins that we've ever committed. What we've been hearing through much of this this song is that it's like through that that suffering servant, the, the whiteboard is completely erased. But here we learn it's even more than that. That by his knowledge... We go from not just neutral, but actually to being accounted righteous. The whiteboard has the word righteous added to it. God's telling us that the servant's death doesn't just get us back up to zero. Puts us past that. All the way up to right with God. Accounted to us. Praise God for this amazing gift. Maybe this is worth celebrating. Uh, I, I was talking to my son, Jonathan, about Easter last night. And he said, it's kind of like two bowling pins, sin and death. And Jesus had to knock both of them down. On Good Friday, he knocked down sin. And on Easter, he knocked down death. And Jonathan was right at a certain level. The biblical logic is is actually even tighter because death is in this world, as we've been learning in Genesis, because of sin. And so if sin is actually dealt with, if that pin falls over, the death pin has to fall over too. They're not independent pins. And so if the servant's death actually does deal with sin so that we can be counted righteous then death must also be undone. 
Which is why God can say, here's the one I exalt. Here's the one whose portion can be with the many. He can know my reward. Because if he's conquered sin, he will also conquer death. And then God's song ends with two glorious tenses. A little grammar here. First, he bore, past tense, the sins of many. But then, and makes, present tense, intercessions for the transgressors. You see, the servant is alive, even today, interceding on behalf of sinners. So how do we get from point A to point B in Isaiah? When my family was stuck on the banks of the Ottawa River, it just so happened that my GPS was right It knew what it was doing. It had taken me to a ferry that would transport me from one bank to the other. And it seems that the book of Isaiah knew what it was doing as well. How do sinners get to a place where God speaks tenderly to them? It's not by undoing the holiness and justice of God. It's not by us pritting ourselves up, kind of whitewashing ourselves all the more diligently so that we can try and look the part. It's by means of a servant who would suffer on our behalf, die on our behalf, pay sin's penalty, and then... Rise up, exalted by God. Isaiah 53 is a remarkable passage. And of course, of course, it is speaking about Jesus in specificity that would give you chills. Richard Gantz grew up in a Jewish home. But by the time he was an adult, he was more of an atheist. In some strange coincidence, he ended up spending some time with some Christians, and they asked him if they could read him the Bible. He consented. And they started reading from Isaiah 53. Gantz recalls thinking, At that point, I suddenly understood what was happening they were reading to me about Jesus. I thought, do they know what they're doing, reading this Christian stuff to a Jew? But I told myself to be patient. The men kept reading. He was wounded for our transgressions. Gantz says, images of Renaissance paintings leapt to my mind. I wasn't an ordinary Jewish guy. I had a doctorate. I was cultured. I'd seen paintings with crosses. I knew that their guy had been pierced. They were trying to read me stories about Jesus, and I felt the anger rising in me. Jesus just bore your sins? I couldn't stand it. That was just a cheap way out of long-term psychoanalysis. 
I remembered pictures of Jesus on the cross and the two thieves, one on either side of him, three crosses. I knew that stuff. They weren't going to fool me with their rhetoric. The men kept reading. He shall see a seed. He shall prolong his days. And Gantz writes, ha, there was a myth about the resurrection. They get it into all their literature, don't they? They can't accept the fact that once a person is dead, he's dead. Grow up. Put away your infantile neuroses and realize that when you're dead, you're dead. That's it. Finally, they finish reading and they ask Gantz his thoughts. Gantz goes on. I was, of course, keen to give the benefit of my insights. They were obviously quoting to me from their New Testament, and I responded without a moment's hesitation. Anyone who was there at the cross could have written that stuff. What does it prove? He handed me the Bible, and in a millisecond of receiving it, my life was changed. The name that I saw at the top of the page was Isaiah. They had been reading from my Bible, my Hebrew scriptures, and I felt as though someone had taken a sword and cut me to pieces. When the man who'd read it to me told me it was written 700 years before Jesus was born, I felt dead. Why couldn't it be Krishna? Why couldn't it be Buddha? Why does it have to be Jesus? I knew at that instant that if Jesus wrote history about himself in my Bible, if the Gentile God was the Jewish God and he was truly God, then I had to submit everything to him for the rest of my life. Richard Gantz is now a pastor in Ottawa. What about you? Do you believe the witnesses? Do you believe what Jesus wrote down 700 years before he came to earth? Has the mighty saving arm of Yahweh been revealed to you this morning? There is a way from point A to point B. There is a way for sinners to be restored to peace with God. Jesus is the way. Come to him. Know his comfort. Come to him. Know his peace. Let's pray. God, thank you for giving us this profound song. We ask that you would use it to cause our hearts to glory all the more in what Christ has done for us. Give us eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen.